So today we are continuing our practice. Um, means, as we know, we're we're on the downhill slope now for the last part of the retreat and uh, the last few days, and yet the practice continues. So uh, we can look at how you know it's this always interesting these cusps of beginnings and moving towards endings because they're very indicative of our relationship to the momentum of karma, how we get born into the next thing. It's not quite, we're not quite on the, the you know, ha, the, it hasn't ended, but we can start to already see the accumulation of where we get pulled and how we get pulled and how it begins to play on us and what we need to do and, and how the mind starts to create ourselves and project into the future and how it's a sort of sense of like, you know, waiting out the last bit. So all of that... Endings are very easy to skip over, you know, because births, new things are so, so powerful. They pull us in so strongly with this seduction almost that somehow there will be some resolve or some, you know, some let up (laughs) in the next thing, in the new thing. You know, even though we know it's quite familiar, mostly what the next thing is, we've done it a billion times, but still there's this sort of, illusion in it and uh, and in that process of skipping forward we miss you know we 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 either not with the the ending of something or we we don't really notice this mechanism of the the rebirth so it's a it's an opportunity to look at endings and rebirth these few days, this cusp kind of time that we're entering into, and, the, and we can feel the karma, karmic wills gaining momentum. All that has to be done. <laughs> but we still have this opportunity to, today to continue with this, um, you know, this very powerful practice and in some ways totally baffling practice. It baffles the mind, the huato, you know, it's sort of, I had the sense yesterday of when I use the huato, turning back the mind into its own energy with the question, who's thinking, who's, yeah, who's proliferating, it's, I had the image of almost like a, a rabbit stuck in the beam of a car headlight at night. It's like my mind was like the rabbit, didn't know where to go. It's like it's fro- it freezes. It's like <laughs> trying to run, skip out, or just, you know, and, and there's something. In fact, yesterday got so intense for me, I just got a headache in the end. I had to sort of go, just calm down and go to the listening and the breath. Um, because it, it began to evoke, you know, this quite profound sense of challenge. So it's, this isn't, a, in, in, in many ways, this, this method is a, a direct challenge to the karmic momentum of the mind. It's, it's, it's an attempt to reverse the outflow, the, 
the flowing out, the running out into the world, which we can, always, we can already feel as we come near to the so-called end of the retreat. You can feel that. And this, in a way, even, even asking the question, there can be resistance. In fact, sometimes the whole, the whole period can go past, and I hear the bell. I think, "Oh, who? <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, right. Now, <laughs> you know, I just completely lost the plot for the whole time. You know, so oh, that's what we're doing. And you know, the other day I was talking about the original split at the same place as the original mind, and uh, and. It's said that in the, in the death process, this is from the Tibetan school, in the bardos, going through the bardos, consciousness, uh, when it has a moment of being faced with its mind, with its own reality, that it's so overwhelmingly awesome, or you know, the, the original luminosity, that there's a sort of swoon, a moment of swoon. We can't really recognize our true nature. You know, and then there's the running into the next birth, the, the separative movement. And in a certain way, asking this question also can evoke that sense of a, it's not exactly a swoon, but it's a sort of a primary unconsciousness. It's a sort of, a, you know, a, a kind of a cloud or the, 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 the clouding over. And it, although it's clearly not as profound as what perhaps happens in the death process, it's evocative of, it's somehow evocative of that sense of the basic not remembering, not remembering the original nature, not remembering itself, and going into this this sort of confusion. So just asking the question sometimes, it just unleashes the, some of these effects, the confusion, doubt, resistance, unconsciousness, can't remember what we're doing. And then the other side, it can also evoke moments of, you know, it can also be inducted into, moment, you know, the sense of when there is a stillness, some samadhi, some gatheredness, the subtle recognition of the underlying peace, spaciousness, peacefulness, lucidity, luminosity, uh, non-dual, the feeling of uh, experience of the world being very intimate. It's like we're really tasting, almost. the core, the, the, the same substanceness. And in doing this practice, it's, it's important to actually be with the whole cycle, not you know, to actually follow it through the sense of, yes, when there's moments, and then the moments of great struggle, or being lost, or just don't know what the hell I'm doing, or the headache, or to try and see it's all part of, a, part of the process of the, what is evoked in the, in the power of this practice. Yeah, otherwise, we can feel very much, you know, Jen Cha used to talk about um, 
He used to say, particularly for us as Westerners, he said, you know, you, you people, he said, it's like you, medit you meditate, you, you pick up meditation practice like having a good lawyer. He said, you know, you go on retreat and you get peaceful and you kind of, everything comes back together and then you go out in life and you get in trouble. And he said, like going on retreat's a bit like having a lawyer springing you out of your trouble. <laughs> he said, but you don't really understand what gets you into trouble in the first place. Yeah, and, and in some ways in meditation we can, you know, after all these years I've been practice, I'm still, I still have this sort of almost unconscious belief that peaceful meditations are the real thing <laughs> and everything else is just in the way. Um, and, you know, we can really aim for just, just that. And in a way the Zen practice is brightening and challenging because it's, it's, you know, sometimes they say the analogy of the hundred-foot pole, that you can stay in the peaceful state, but it's not finished because, because there's this, the, you know, the tendency to tip into confusion and the karmic force. So this who, in a way, evokes the sludge, the unconsciousness, the obstruction, um, the wall in the Zen, they actually literally sit against a wall and sometimes you don't need to sit against the wall. Um, yesterday I was just like, I was a wall. <laughs> it was just wall. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and uh, just, you know, just to actually recognize that this, this, this practice is about, you know, the integration, not just the peaceful, but actually also the challenge of it that, it, that it will challenge. If it's true practice, it will challenge. It won't let us just, you know, as Ajahn Charles said, you know, keep reverting to our, calling our lawyer up when we're in trouble, but being interested in the wall, in the obstruction. And in this way, the... Um, the practice, you know, it's, it's a subtle, it's sometimes holding the huato, the inquiry can be, I think what happened to me yesterday is I did it too strongly. And I, you know, I felt like I was in some sort of weird battle with, with Mara, with my mind, just going with, and then landed up with a headache, which perhaps wasn't that skillful, but sometimes it can be quite fierce. You know, just really challenging this constant going out, going out, going out. And sometimes it can be more like a dance or more subtle or more just the underlying sense of that which is aware and present to the flow and returning this, not even with the huateau, but the sense of leaning back or listening, the listening, what's called listening into the self-nature, using sound, which is more soothing and less confrontational, and so you could say it's not, you know, it's not a technique in that we just plod on with it, but it's, you know, picking up how to adjust, how to use it, how to apply it. This practice is really aiming in the in the Zen Chan expression of awakening. It's said that basically there's the understanding that there's nothing whatsoever to attain. 
there's no attainment. In the Heart Sutra, um, declares that the Bodhisattva doesn't attain, just recognizes through the, the mantra, the Prajnaparamita, has faith or confidence, um, takes refuge in Prajnaparamita, in the original nature of mind. Uh, and, uh, you know, and the recognition that that all the practices, all the efforts, although they're ripening and maturing, that the ultimate, you know, mind ground itself isn't an attainment. It's something that, you know, it just is. It always is. It always has been. It's, it's uh, recognized. And I thought I would um, share a little bit from <clears throat> one of the Zen patriarchs, the uh, Hui Neng. Who, um, and how his transmission happened, because, uh, it's, because there's some in the story and in the this is from the platform sutra in the story of the transmission, his transmission, his awakening, and in the circumstances around it, there's certain, certain things that we can pull out and glimpse some understanding for ourselves. And he comes, Huinan comes from quite a simple background. He's a, a woodcutter and a peasant boy, and uh, he's doing his thing, cutting wood. And then one day he sells firewood, cuts wood and sells firewood. And one day he goes into a a shop um, delivering his firewood, and he hears uh, a customer reciting a verse from the Diamond Sutra. And the verse that this commentator, who's Red Pine, he thinks it's the... um, the very famous verse, all conditioned dharmas are as dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows like dewdrops, like a lightning flash, contemplate them thus. All conditioned dharmas are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, like dewdrops in a lightning flash, contemplate them thus. So, so he, Hui Neng hears this and he awakens. He awakens to his original brightness. He just sees the, the whole magic show of the mind, and it just drops away. And he goes, where did this, where, what are you reciting? Where, where does it come from? What, what? And he says, no, this, this, uh, he said that uh, the, he, he's come from the, um, the monastery of the patriarch of Master Hungzheng, um, where he has a, a congregation of more than a thousand disciples practicing. So Hui Neng immediately feels, oh, I've got to go there and practice. So he goes and then he meets, he goes and uh, bumps into, meets uh, Hong Zhen. And Hong Zhen says, where are you from? And uh, what exactly do you hope to get from me by coming to this mountain to pay your respects? And uh, Hui Neng says, uh, I, I answered, your disciple is from Lingnam, a commoner from Xin Chu. The reason I come to you is to pay my respect, and all I want is to be a Buddha. I don't want anything else. So he's pretty, you know, like, <laughs> not messing around. And uh, the master scoffed, but you're from Lingnam, which apparently is like out in the sticks of nowhere, and you're a jungle rat as well, which is a sort of like, you're just like a hick, you know. How can you possibly be a Buddha? And Hui Neng uh, says, 
I replied, people come from the north or south, not their Buddha nature. The lives of this jungle rat and the masters aren't the same, but how can our Buddha nature differ? Touché. It's like, you know. (laughs) So the master's like, hmm. The master was about to say something more, but then he saw his attendant standing there and he didn't say anything else and sent me to join the Sangha workforce. A novice then led me to the milling room where I peddled a millstone for more than eight months. Okay. So he's so there's this confrontation with the master and he meets the master, you know, at at the level of the original mind, not the stuff. And what's interesting is the master's about to say something and he kind of backs off and then sends him off to the kitchens to work for eight months. And we will return to that piece a bit later. So anyway, life goes on. He's in the kitchen. He's the kitchen boy. He doesn't even get into the, into, the, uh, into the practice room. He's just there in the kitchen. He's not even made it into the... Into the I mean, you, this is a kind of a culture that's extremely hierarchical and who gets let in and who doesn't and the master and the whole... The, you know, the politics of it are very intense. One day, the fifth patriarch, this is the master, suddenly called all his disciples together and said, I've told... Uh, I've told you that the greatest concern for human being is life and death, but you disciples spend your days making offerings, just looking for ways to reap merit and not for a way out of the bitter sea of samsara. If you're blind to your own nature, how can you find the doorway to merit? Go back to your rooms and look into yourselves. Those of you who are wise, make use of the prajna wisdom of your own nature. Each of you must write a mere gutta, a poem. When I read your gutters, if any of you understands what is truly important, I will give you my robe and my dharma and appoint you the sixth patriarch. Hurry, as if there was a fire. Okay, so he's challenged his whole assembly. He says, like, I want to know your enlightenment and you're going to express this. This was a very, uh, the method in a Chinese Zen school. You express your enlightenment through a gutter and there's a whole thing of Zen masters doing this or on their deathbed, you know, in a few lines. So the, the disciples go back and uh, they headed back to their rooms and then said to, the, to each other, well, there's no need for us to clear our minds and trouble ourselves about writing a gutter to show the abbot. The venerable Shen Sui is our precept instructor and after he receives the Dharma, we can look to him. So they kind of, the whole assembly, they basically don't even try. They don't even feel they can do it. And they say, well, the guy that's been in charge, the instructor, the scholar, the guy that's kind of in control, uh, he's, he'll do it and we'll just look to him. So there's this kind of deference to the authority, to the, the person that they assume will get the robe. So anyway, the story goes on. And the, and, but the, the precept master... Shen Sui is really uh, a little like worried because he knows he, <laughs> he knows he's not quite up to scratch, <laughs> and so he starts sort of really fretting about what is in, what is he going to do because if he writes something, the master will see he's not really in line. But if he doesn't write something, you know, that he's supposed to be the top guy. So in the end, he solves the whole thing by anonymously writing on the wall a gutter, and he feels like well, if the if the master comes along and says it's good, then you know, I'll sort of come out of the woodwork sort of thing. So Shen Yu wrote his gutter, which is, the body is a Bodhi tree, the mind like a standing mirror, always try to keep it clean, don't let it gather dust. Okay. So so the, the master sees this gutter 
And uh, he says, he sees it, but he realizes that who's written it and that they're not, they haven't really got the, the essential point. But uh, he, he nevertheless, he, um, he calls his disciples together and he burns incense before the gutter. When everyone saw this, they were filled with admiration. And he says, unless you will recite and understand this gutter, he said, you won't see your nature. Anyone who relies on this for their practice won't regress. So he feels, well, it's better that people recite this. He says that in his mind he feels like, well, it would be better if we kept this gutter for deluded people to recite. If they rely on it for their practice, they won't fall into the three unfortunate states of existence. And it will be a great help to anyone who cultivates the Dhamma. So although, you know, the, the master sees this and he feels, well, it's not, you know, but it's, it's a good gutter, it's a good practice, and he gets everyone to recite it, and the whole assembly thinks this is it. The master's, you know, the um, precept master's has uh, coined it, and they start reciting it. And one day, the um, Hui Neng is in his kitchen doing his duties, and he hears a disciple going past reciting this gutter. And as soon as he hears it, he knows that, it, that the person that's written it doesn't understand enlightenment. So he's literate as well. He's not only in the kitchen, but he can't read or write. So he gets another disciple to, um, to help him. He says, look, um, I, I want to write my gutter. Will you come and you know, help me write it up on the wall? Um, and so they go together, and um, and he sort of he's pondering to himself. I asked someone who could write to write it on the west corridor wall, so I could reveal my mind. Unless you know your own mind, studying the Dharma is useless. But once you know your mind and see your nature, you understand what is truly important. My gutter went. Bodhi doesn't have any trees. This mirror doesn't have a stand. Our Buddha nature is forever pure. Where do you get this dust? (laughs) 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 Then I I composed another one. The mind is the Bodhi tree. The body is the mirror's stand. So he completely reverses the the meaning of the previous gutta. The mirror itself is so clean, dust has no place to land. When the disciples in the courtyard saw these gutters of mine, they were absolutely dumbfounded. After I left and went back to the milling room, the fifth patriarch suddenly came down the corridor and also saw them. He knew I understood what was truly important, but he didn't want others to know. So he told everyone, this one doesn't get it either. So what was interesting, and what was interesting when he first met Hui Neng, when they met, the master recognized that he knew you know, that he had the transmission that he had awakened to his original nature, but he saw his attendance. And in this, in the revelation of the gutter, he also, you know, is a confirmation, but he decides to detract the heat from Queen Neng because of the assuming that the, the incredible politics that were going on at the time um, around who would get the, uh, the robe and the bowl, the transmission, as the, as the next head of the, of the order. So... Um, but then he said to him, he comes up to him, he says, well, at night, unknown to anyone, he asked, uh, the fifth patriarch called him to his room and gave him the transmission, gave him the bowl and the robe. Um, 
and said, which is interesting, the fifth patriarch said to Huineng, since ancient times the life of those whom, to whom this teacher has been to whom this teaching has been transmitted have hung by a thread. If you stay here, someone will harm you. You must leave at once. So Huineng gets the, the, the robe and the bowl and then he basically has to run for his life because <laughs> the whole monastery is so mad at him that the kitchen boy um, gets the transmission, becomes the new patriarch. And it's said that he kind of, he does, he leaves and he goes away and he gets chased by one of the head monks who was a general for months and months and months. And he's sort of like, and in the end, the general, uh, the ex-general who's now a monk tracks him down and Hui Neng looks at him and they have, they have this confrontation. And Hui Neng says, okay, well, here's the bowl and you can take it back. You know, he doesn't care, you know, really. He's like, you know, he's out there on his own and so he's like, okay, have it, have it. And then the general says, well, actually, I haven't come here for a robe or a bowl. And he bows to Hui Neng. He says, I've come for the transmission. So he becomes the first disciple of the sixth patriarch. And then it lands up that Hui Neng teaches for 40 years and transmits the Dhamma. But then in this, um, in this story, you have, you have, you have t- different things. There's lots of different elements to po- point out. And, one of them is that in him introducing himself, because this is Hui Neng talking the sutra to his disciples and introducing himself, he introduced himself as well, someone that has had an affinity for many lifetimes with this practice. So he's acknowledging the power of the ripening, you know, that, that it wasn't that he just stumbled across it, um, but there was some deep, deep affinity and so there was a ripening, but there was also a suddenness in the moment of awakening. And both of these principles are, are valid. Yeah. And even the master, when he saw the gutter of the head precept master, could see that actually the practice, he was, he was, he was encouraging the disciples to practice, and even that had merit. It was like this, you know. So, so one could say, well... There's no value in practice, just wait around until there's a sudden awakening. But both of these principles are interwoven in the sutra, and saying, yes, no, but there, there was a process of practice and practice and practice, but the ripening, like for Hui Neng, it wasn't dependent on you know, him being in a particular circumstance or being in a powerful position, or you know, he was just the guy in the kitchen that couldn't even read or write, but he had the moment of like the fruit dropping from the tree. So, in a way, this you know this is another paradox that we're presented with in this teaching to to practice with the idea of not knowing that there's no attainment, and yet to practice to bring about ripening, and and you know being able to to hold that like. In the moment when we hold this practice, when we work with the Huato, it's important to work with it freshly, you know, as if we are Hui Neng in that marketplace, you know, that, you know, that Zen mind, beginner's mind. And we hear, it might not be the gutter of the Diamond Sutra, but in a way everything is teaching us the Diamond Sutra. The, the song of the bird, um, the snoring of Jack, the... You know, the rustle of someone next to us with the pen and the paper, the, 
the thoughts of the mind, the plans for the future, they're all appearing like that, that dream, the mind's like a dream, they're all appearing like that bubble, they, they arise, they, they exist and then they dissolve again, they appear like that shadow, uh, it's like we live in these shadows, they appear like that uh, lightning flash, it's there, it's gone, it appears like that dewdrop. So, you know, we're, all, we're, we're, we're in a way, we're being both. We're being both uh, the precept master who sort of slogs away and practices <laughs> and is dutiful. And, you know, he's not, he's not some heavy power-seeking. I mean, he's in a genuine quandary. He's, like, done this practice. He's in charge of things. He's doing his duty. He's the dutiful one doing everything. And yet he's not released. He's not liberated. And that's a part of us too, you know, we slog away. But recognizing that, that at any moment there can be, you know, when there's a recognition of the, the Diamond Sutra being taught here and now with each heartbeat, it's there and it's gone, it's there and it's gone. The ripening can come forward in the moment of ah, the release in the marketplace. or in the cushion, or as Ananda, Ananda, Buddha's cousin, just as he's about to, gives up. Usually it happens when we give up. He's about to go to sleep. Remember the story that Kilisara told the other night? He wasn't allowed in the assembly because he wasn't enlightened. And he's like, oh, I can't do it. At that moment, he lets go. Uh, and often this, this practice will ripen when, when we fail. You know, we tried everything. We tried the huato, we tried the listening, we tried the breath, we tried the inquiry. <laughs> and still the, man, the mind is mad, still the obstructions are there, still the wall is there. And then there's just a moment of just giving up. All the efforts, all the trying, all the me doing it. The despair, Kilisara was saying yesterday, last night, so beautifully in his talk. Yeah. The feeling I can't, I can't do this, and you know it's true. The I can't do it, and yet the I can't stop either. You can't sort of not just you know not engage the practice. So, for that moment of just like no strategy. And then we're fresh in this light, fresh here. Still the birds singing, still Jack snoring. Still the dreamlike nature of mind. Huang Po, who's another 
I don't know these lineages of patriarchs, which number they all are, <laughs> where they come in historical order. Um, and, but, you know, this is also a similar era, the early Chan masters. He, he talks about it like this. The mind of the Bodhisattva is like the void, and everything is relinquished by it. So there you just have one phrase, which, which can be a huato. It's this sense of relinquishing. The natural, it's like that mirror. It, can't, it can reflect everything, but it's not going to capture anything. It's not even a question of not grasping. It's just the recognition of nothing can be captured. It's just a mirage. When thoughts of the past cannot be taken hold of, that is relinquishment of the past. When thoughts of the present cannot be taken hold of, that is relinquishment of the present. When thoughts of the future cannot be taken hold of, that is relinquishment of the future. This is called the utter relinquishment of the triple time. Since the Tathagata entrusted Kashyapa with the Dharma until now, mind has been transmitted with mind and these minds have been identical. And it goes on. It's very, it's very paradoxical, this particular text from Huang Po. But this harkens back to an early, one of the earliest um, collections of teachings we have of the Buddha is from the Sutta Nipata, from the, the early school. And this is a, a chapter right at the end called The Way to the Beyond, where the, the Buddha is approached by um, 16, I think it is, or 14 Brahmin students, 16 Brahmin students who've heard about the Buddha and they want to basically get, like Hui Neng, they want to, well, Hui Neng already had the realization, but they want to get to the core of what's this guy about? Um, let's go and check him out. So they kind of, each of them come um, and they ask questions. And it's very beautiful. You hear in the way that they approach the Buddha, there's a lot of devotion. And in this way, this is also important, this sense of how do we approach the Dhamma. You know, yesterday when I was practicing and I felt this struggle and the wall and this kind of, almost my mind just screaming, demanding, (laughs) Jess, shut up! (laughs) I thought, no, this surely can't be... (laughs) But there was something that's like, and then it was just like, no, I've got to, I've just got to, in a way, what came up was the name, the Kuan Yin, it's like the, the devotion, it's just like, I can't do it. Just like, again, that surrender, that, you know, calling for help to the mystery. I just offer my life back into the knowing, into the presence, and let the ripening happen of its own nature. And you feel like in the way that these Brahmin students approach the Buddha, there's this incredible sense of, of poetical devotion, which is, which is a lovely heart uh, ground to come from, to approach this most subtle aspect. This is a question of Jatukani, which I like very much. The Brahmin student Jatukani spoke, I have heard, he said to the Buddha, that there is an ocean crosser, a hero desiring the desireless. And I have come to ask a question of this person without desire. Tell me this, I of instant seeing and knowing, 
What is the state of peace? Please explain it to me as it really is. You, Master, rule desire and pleasure like the sun with heat and light rules and controls the earth. I have only a little understanding, sir, and you are a globe full of wisdom. Tell me how to find and know the way of giving up this world of births and deaths. And this is like this beautiful sense of like honoring the Buddha and this heart, you know, it's like that heart that really, when it gives up and it can't, its strategies don't work, it's like, please enlighten me. <laughs> how can I free myself from the prison of this mind? And the Buddha replies to Jatukani, Jatukani, Lose the pleasure for, lose the greed for pleasure, and see how letting go of the world is peacefulness. There is nothing that you need to hold on to, and there is nothing that you need to push away. And this is the verse that's resonant with Huangpo all those centuries later. Dry up the remains of your past and have nothing for your future. If you do not cling even to the present, then you can go to place. To place in peace. If you do not cling even to the present, then your passage through life is peaceful, is free. So today, as we contemplate this Dhamma, uh, using using the Huato, if that's helpful for us. When it gets too fierce, we get too confused or we tap into that rabbit frozen in the headlights, doesn't know which way to go. Remember we, our other skillful means of listening, of breath, being with sensation, being with body, of kindness, of patience that's been talked to a lot, of offering back into the name opening the heart and with devotion, opening to the mystery. As we're at this time of our retreat, last while, integrating, you know, working with this Huato and integrating what we've done with the breath, but also remembering that time is an illusion. It's only ever now. Mm. The thought of the future is a thought. The future, when it comes, is now. It's always just now. So we could say there isn't a future. Because it's, there's a perception of the future, there's a memory of the past, but both are now. And even grasping, trying to hold the present, it runs through our fingers like water. So this timeless original mind transcends or is, is not caught in that tyranny of time. So, you know, as our teacher Ajahn Sumedha used to teach us, he said, rather than thinking you're going to the future in time, going to the next thing, following that movement of the asava as it flows out, rather resting in the awareness and letting life unfold within the awareness. So the next things are rising in this moment and in this moment and in this moment, but we stay we're practicing to stay rooted. And it's not that far away. It's the most intimate place. It's that knowing of the heart, that presence of the heart. We're rooted right there, mindfully. 
in our original nature. And there we meet Huinang, there we meet Huang Po, there we meet the Tathagata. It's the same mind, the same heart. It's just listening, just listening to the sounds of the world. Nowhere to go, no future to be born into, no past to dwell in, no present to even grasp, allowing the flow of life to unfold in this naked heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.